Have you been diagnosed with PTSD or do you know someone who has been? And do you want to understand it better? Do you ever wonder what happens to our brain and body during a life-threatening event? Today I'll share the most relevant science that pertains to trauma as we currently understand it in the field of medicine. Welcome to The Happy Wizard. I'm your host, Dr. Shiva Guide. I'm a board-certified and licensed clinical psychologist, a public speaker, and an educator. In this podcast series, I'll be sharing strategies to help you heal from the past, navigate everyday challenges, and create a much more meaningful life. Today, I am going to dissect this disorder called post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And I'd also like to discuss some of the other trauma and related disorders. Um, I'll do this over two episodes uh, that are both called The Science of Trauma. First, it's important to know that there are anatomical and physiological changes in the brain that can occur with long-term or chronic stress, right? The field of neurobiology and neurobiology research has found that the most significant or profound impact is on something that we call the fear circuitry. Um, Basically, what this is referring to is our fight-flight-freeze response. And I think most of you have probably heard this expression. Um, I learned it as fight-flight many, many, many years ago. But um, we added freeze. And interestingly, the freeze response is the most common response animals have during a life-threatening event. Um, And freeze might even be so extreme, and this is newer research that has been uh, done with other animals, um, that we can call it tonic or collapsed immobility. So it almost, if you've seen videos of animals that go into this tonic or collapsed immobility freeze state, it's, it really almost is like the animal is dead, stops breathing, completely frozen. Um, It's a life-saving strategy. And it's really quite extraordinary. And like I said, this is kind of newer research that's been done um, showing us that it's not just fight or flight. Many of the people that I talk to and have worked with really hate this reality for, for whatever reason. I think, you know, we're socialized and not always in healthy ways, right? That we seem to value as a society the fight or the flight, right? or maybe just the fight, but definitely not the freeze. Um, I've worked with many people that carry a great deal of shame and guilt about freezing during a life-threatening event. But it's really important to realize that freezing is not a sign of weakness, and it also doesn't mean consent. So, for example, if you were molested as a child or you were sexually assaulted as an adult— if you were raped or in combat and you froze, this was out of your control, most likely. And it was a response that was meant to save you. And we have to honor this amazing organ that our brain is and all of these physiological, hormonal, and neurochemical phenomenon that really are intended to keep us alive. There are survival uh, strategies by the human body, by the animal body. So what's interesting is we don't get to choose, you know, the brain kind of chooses for us. And I think all we can do is kind of hope for the best, right? (laughs) Hope it works out for us. Fight, flight, freeze are normal brain processes 
and we experience them when our survival response is activated. Um, Also, in the context of freezing, um, another specific reaction can occur that I wanted to mention um, that's also a survival mechanism, and it's called dissociation. Uh, Perhaps some of you have experienced this. In a way, it's almost like you default to an autopilot state um, and that you're functioning in very temporarily, again, for survival. Um, Freezing can also be something that is influenced by socialization. For example, what we know is that um, women tend to be taught or learn to be more passive versus aggressive. And um, women also tend to be more others-focused versus self-focused. And so this can, this can also increase the likelihood of having a freeze response in a life-threatening situation, especially an interpersonal type of trauma. Okay, so moving on. So back to the science. There are some very, very real changes that we do see in the brain in someone who's become stuck and who has actually started to develop that cluster of symptoms that we call PTSD, for example. Um, And again, I'm focusing on PTSD just because it's the very commonly referred to and discussed one. Um, But there are other trauma disorders, and essentially the mechanism and the science is the same for all of them. We've learned from research in the field that the amygdala, and the amygdala is our fear or our emotion processing center, but that that becomes much more sensitive in people who have developed PTSD. That means it becomes overreactive. And, and if you think about that, it's probably not a really good thing that you are now overreacting in situations that are not actually life-threatening. Um, We also see that in the prefrontal cortex, that's in the frontal lobe, that's um, the part of our brain, that higher functioning that is responsible for executive functioning, memory, you know, reasoning, decision-making, judgment, all of that important stuff. Also, incidentally, that is the last part of the brain to fully develop um, in the first two decades of life. And actually... uh, kind of the first to middle of the third decade, so early to mid-20s. But that prefrontal cortex area can become less active, right? And if you think about what the prefrontal cortex does, right, reasoning, decision-making, judgment, uh, we don't want that to be less active. And so these two changes, the combination of your amygdala being overreactive and your prefrontal cortex becoming less active can really lead to some difficulties for you in terms of what we call adaptation. Um, Adaptation is our ability to evolve or change in order to fit into a new environment or a new set of circumstances. So for my fellow science nerds out there or any lovers of all things social psychology, what we're really talking about is conditioned learning and extinction. Um, And we'll have a podcast specifically going into the weeds of classical conditioning, or you might have heard it referred to as Pavlovian conditioning, and some of those related concepts, um, because that is really going to help you understand how you ended up developing this more chronic anxiety or trauma-related or trauma disorder. Um, For now, uh, so let's just summarize why that's important. Um, As animals, we learn through experiences, And often 
we learn how and what to fear through those frightening or near-death experiences that we have. Um, but in order to be a healthy animal, you know, we also have to learn that one scary experience doesn't mean that we want to constantly be in fear after that. And our higher cognitive abilities, our ability to think critically, that means in logical, rational, healthy, balanced, helpful ways, will actually end up determining our mental and eventually our physical health. Highest order critical thinkers have cognitive and behavioral flexibility. What that means is that people who are able to think in very logical, rational ways, that doesn't mean that you leave the emotional out. It just means that you are thinking in ways that if you took this thought process into a court of law, everybody, hundred people would say, yes, we agree. That makes sense. Those people tend to adapt quickly and also better to changing situations and, you know, the evolving environmental needs in your life. When we are in a life-threatening situation, our amygdala, which is our fear center, actually bypasses the prefrontal cortex. So it's kind of like we have this like super highway response to the limbic system, which then initiates that fight, flight, freeze reaction. But then that message kind of, as they say, takes side streets and back roads to get to the prefrontal cortex. So let me, let me kind of come out of that sort of nerd speak and break this down and give you a perfect example of this. Let's say that you are in a situation, you start to feel anxious or scared, and maybe your specific default, and this is very common, is anger or aggression, or, you know, we can call it the fight mode. So you punch the other person because you get all riled up. And I know this is very extreme, but, um, and that's just your auto automatic reaction in that situation, right? That's your automatic uh, reaction of your autonomic nervous system, sympathetic branch, right? The fight, flight, freeze. In that moment, you thought it was a great idea and you felt justified, right? And maybe even for a few minutes after, but then like maybe 15, 30 minutes go by and you start to not be so sure, you know, and, and at the one point this message reaches your frontal lobe and you're like, fuck, what did I do? And you start to realize like maybe punching this other person was not the best strategy. There could have been another way, a better strategy, something that maybe didn't involve physical aggression, right? But the problem is it's like a straight superhighway to the limbic system, right? And that then sends out the message that you are in danger and then you punch someone. And then by the time that message reaches your your frontal lobe, which kind of does the reasonable, logical thought processing, um, it's too late, right? You've already punched the person, punched the wall, screamed out, you know, profanity to your boss or whatever. Also, something interesting happens with memory during a traumatic event. Uh, memories are encoded very differently and they sometimes are not in chronological order. Details that are more salient or relevant or also arousing, that means like activating to your autonomic nervous system, they're encoded because of that intense focus of your fear circuitry, of your fight, flight, freeze response. And, and then, 
you know, less relevant or what we call in the field peripheral details may not be encoded. And and I'm going to give you um, a specific example for this to kind of bring this to life. Also, contextual information and time sequence are usually poorly encoded. And remember, there was there's another podcast on memories um, that you might want to listen to if you're kind of interested in how memory works. And I really get into the weeds there. So let me stop for a second and, and share a personal example, um, only because, you know, for some of you, what I just said, probably you're like, oh, that's just a lot of gibberish, science, uh, nerdy speak, and I have no idea what the fuck Dr. G is talking about. So um, I'll make this very tangible. As some of you might know, um, I was present at the Route 91 Harvest Festival in October, at the end of September, October of 2017. And I survived that deadliest massacre in U.S. history to date. Sadly, it may not always be uh, statistically the deadliest massacre because things just seem to be ramping up by the year. Anyway, so what happened with my memory of that event is actually pretty typical and similar to what happens to many people who experience trauma. So I think it's helpful to understand Um, And I'm going to share this with you to also help normalize some of the things that you might have experienced so that maybe you can let go of any shame or guilt that you carry, you know, related to that event. Very briefly after that event, a couple of months, I'd say, I also, you know, I felt very confused and also really guilty. And part of that guilt, aside from not being able to help anybody was the guilt because I didn't remember some pretty critical things um, that were around me, happening around me. Um, And that's just the really interesting phenomenon of human memory. Um, And this is just, these things happen just because we're hardwired that way. So so here's what happens. When you're having a fight-flight-freeze response, you're in a hyper-aroused state physiologically. So what happens is those memories, and again, I'll kind of just um, summarize what I went into detail in, in the memory podcast episode, but those memories are stored differently and they're stored in a different way or a different place than they would be on a normal day when you're not going through a life-threatening ex- experience. So in any case, when I got back from Vegas uh, I immediately sat down and I typed everything out that I could remember about what happened that night into that morning. And I did that because I just felt like everything was so jumbled up in my head and I just couldn't piece things together very well. Um, I had like a lot of powerful and just really painful snapshot memories in my head. Um, and they were really vivid and very terrifying uh, and a lot of them were just those moments during that night that I I was convinced that I was going to die. But then there are these gaps. And, and there had to be, um, and that's because, you know, the shooting started around 10. And I remember looking at my watch once we were in the conference room or that shelter that they opened up at the Tropicana, and it was 1230. So like literally we had been running around and hiding around the venue and the hotels and parts of the strip, uh, like the parking lots in and out and that sort of thing. Um, and we had been doing that for two and a half hours, but I have, I do not have two and a half hours worth of memories. 
which is really was really strange to me, and and I felt um, very very guilty about it. People who've gone through something traumatic um, experience this all the time. They have extremely vivid snapshots where it's almost like time slowed down, but then there are a lot of holes in the memory. And sometimes things are also out of order. There's also an issue of what we remember specifically. So what we encode for. And interestingly, uh, during a life-threatening event, we only encode for the information that our brain happens to think is relevant to our survival. And this is not the same thing as what you, after the fact, what you think is relevant to survival or what the facts speak to. It's just at the moment when we are in life threat, what does your brain pay attention to? Basically, what that means is that, you know, in order to put something into memory, and that's what encoding is, we have to give it a label. We have to name it. And if we don't give something a label, then we don't encode it. Um, so to use a personal example, when the shooting started and, and at the point where, uh, again, I have no concept of time, but it was uh, after the shooting stopped that we started to move towards the middle of the venue, my brain did not encode trash left behind people's belongings, like shoes, hats, you know, backpacks, whatever. And my brain didn't even encode the people who had died and were laying around the venue. For some reason, somehow I blocked out some of these things. I do have some images, um, you know, in my head of people being carried, but my brain doesn't, or well, did not encode it correctly at the time. Because in all that chaos, I didn't understand yet what was happening. I didn't understand that people were getting shot and killed. And I, you know, recall at the time just uh, thinking uh, they must be really drunk, right? No, they were dead. And, you know, what I do recall was seeing an enormous pool of blood. I recall maneuvering through that turf area. Um, and we were really in the kill zone and maneuvering to the middle of the venue to hide once the shooting stopped. But strangely, and, and this was really interesting to me, especially as a professional in the field and specialized in trauma, my memory of the turf was that after I saw that pool of blood, it was just green, pristine green turf. Even though I almost tripped, I recall having trouble moving across the turf for obvious reasons, and I recall being very focused on getting to that midpoint, you know, and to get bottles of water that some, somebody had been throwing out to people who were running off the venue. And why? Why was that important? Because I literally, and, and this was one of the most poignant memories I have, is I felt like I couldn't breathe. I had the most extraordinary cotton mouth experience of my entire life. And so all I could think about is like saving my own ass and getting some water so that I didn't die. Um, it's a really, you know, after the fact, in hindsight, it's a really bizarre, uh, a bizarre thought to have and a bizarre memory to have in the context of what was going on. Another one of those things that, uh, you know, I felt really guilty about in the days that followed, not only not remembering some of the details, but not being able to help anybody. And again, back to those details of what was on the turf, you know, we saw pictures after the fact. So I knew that it wasn't green, pristine turf, but my memory just kind of blocked out certain things. Anyway, neither here nor there, 
the point is, is that to give you a more tangible example on how to understand this whole trauma thing and how it affects our brain and memory and all of that. And maybe right now, some of you are thinking about your own traumatic experience and starting to put the pieces together and understand why you don't remember all of it. And there are holes and things are out of order. It's totally normal. And let me just kind of say that. Okay, so let's get back to PTSD. So the problem is once you develop PTSD, there are some other things that we have noticed on functional MRI scans of the brain and other types of scientific studies. You know, again, all of this is just to teach you that once you are in that small percentage of people that get stuck, there are some legitimate, real, visible things that are happening to the brain. One of those things is cortisol changes. Um, cortisol is one of our many stress hormones, and it's the one you probably have heard a lot about or talked about. And what we've noticed is that in people who've developed PTSD, it's actually decreased. And that decrease in cortisol can lead to a higher reactivity or responsiveness in times of stress. So, and that, that, goes for even normal amounts of stress, right? So, you know, we've got the cortisol changes. We have your amygdala is more overreactive and your prefrontal cortex is underactive. Um, We also see changes in the hippocampus. That's a really important part of our brain. And that part of the brain is responsible for memory and focus and concentration. And it takes notes And we'll go into all of that uh, in a separate podcast, but it takes notes when you're in a life-threatening event. Um, So while you're having this fight-flight-freeze response, um, we have learned that there is actually a protein released from the hippocampus called the ARC protein. And we think that that protein is responsible for driving certain snapshot memories into long-term memory storage you know, just in case we should ever find ourselves in that type of event again. So in people with PTSD, um, we see a decreased volume and also a decreased function in that hippocampal structure. The hippocampus is in the limbic system, right? That's kind of a more primitive, uh, it's the midbrain area where the amygdala lives and where all that fight flight stuff and emotion uh, processing is happening. Finally, um, there are some changes in some of our key chemicals. So we see changes in dopamine. Um, that is our brain's happy chemical. Um, serotonin and norepinephrine and epinephrine, also called noradrenaline and adrenaline. And you've probably heard some of um, some things about those chemicals. Um, and then also changes in our endorphins. That's our body's or our brain's natural painkiller, physical and emotional. Please remember, you know, and I'll say it over and over again, there are a few different trauma disorders. PTSD is not the only one. It's just the one that we talk about the most. Since this is the most talked about one, um, you know, not to neglect the other ones, but I will talk about it in more detail. And I'd like to go specifically over the criteria that you would have to meet to in order to get the diagnosis of PTSD. And we're going to do that in the next episode because I've thrown a lot of science at you. Just to summarize what we've talked about today, I think the most important take home for all of you is to again whether you remember all the specific 
changes in structures and chemicals, not so important. But what I want you to, to remember always is that the brain is an organ and it's a really important one. It runs all of our other organs. And when you get stuck, there are real visible and measurable changes that start to happen. And once you're stuck, you really need to go and see a professional and get on medication and get in therapy and doing both at the same time is, um, gives you the greatest, uh, improvement so that you can reverse all that damage that you've done to your brain and your life. PTSD and the other trauma disorders uh, and trauma symptoms in general are manageable and they are treatable. So stay tuned for the next episode on the criteria for PTSD and some information about some of other trauma disorders and related problems, according to the current DSM-5. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you've learned at least one new thing that you can practice this week. Please feel free to share feedback and submit ideas for future topics at happywizardpodcast at gmail.com. Take care, stay safe and healthy until we meet again. 